finished our series going through uh, the stuff from the Gospel of Luke. Um, we don't do that all the time, finished series, I mean. And so that's kind of a big deal if you're uh, like newish or newer to Water City and you're like, finished a series, way to go, you did your job. Um, it's harder than you think. So uh, um, so anyway, that's uh, we're, we're glad about that. And so then this morning is kind of uh, a point of terror and an exciting thing for me just as a teacher, pastor. Um, and I don't know if you're the same way, but... Uh, I forget what the writer talked about it, but the paralysis of the blank page of starting not just a new chapter or a new season, new whatever, but a whole a whole new thing. And so <clears throat> last Sunday night, we had a learning circle here at the church. It was a lot of fun gathered and, and processed through some of the stuff from the themes of um, of the series. And, and one of the questions that came up in the, in the night was, so what are we going to do next? In in all honesty, I said I don't have any idea, um, and I'm not one of those. I very rarely will I say God said to me this is what we're going to do next. I grew up in a church where a pastor was always saying, "This morning I feel like what God wants to say or what God's leading us to say or whatever," and and I would just sit there and I'd be like, "I don't know that I relate to that." And does God every week show up in His office and like, "Okay, let's go to Luke or let's go to." Whatever, and so I was just trying to, and and so because that isn't the way I have walked this faith life, I try to not use that language of this is what God is leading us into. Now that said, I know that felt like a setup. That said, this morning we're actually in beginning into a series. It's going to be. Uh, this week and then eight more weeks, it'll make sense in a second, um, that we've been marinating on for a while. And so I didn't actually think this was going to be a sermon series. What I thought this was going to be was just a discipleship, um, not a curriculum, but like a thing um, that for those coming in that are making a commitment of faith or a recommitment of faith that we would, as a church, have something in-house that we would then walk folks through on this is what it looks like to follow Christ with our lives. Um, but in in marinating and soaking and reading and processing and discussing that, um, just the thing didn't come together. And so I thought, well, let's just kickstart this and we'll make a sermon series out of it because there's no like, sorry, I don't know what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, and so by doing this as a series, a couple things are going to happen in my mind. One is that we are collectively going to have uh, uh, a conversation about these are the things that we are saying are the deepest things of following Jesus. And there's four areas. And these are what we go all in on. Um, and so processing to some together as a church. Now, for some of you, you've been around church for a million years. And um, to you, I say, awesome. And I'm glad that you're going to process this with us because on the other side of this, there is, uh, and we're going to see this this morning, the longer we are in this life of faith, the harder it is actually to live out this life of faith. You've seen more, you've experienced more, you've been locked down, you've... Uh, the shine is off, and it moves from the the early years to then well something different 
Um, and, and so for you, awesome. I'm, I'm super glad we're going to be able to process this together. Um, and, and also in that, my hope just is that we as a community of faith, if you've been around this a long time, that you've got someone that you're praying for, that you're in conversation with, that this is going to resonate with like, oh, okay, I'm going to take this with them, do this with them. Um, and maybe you're newer or newish to faith or new to coming back and exploring faith or it's been a while or whatever. Um, you're also in my mind as, as we're going through this because faith is, it's, that's a big tent. When we talk about Christianity and we talk about the church and we talk about faith and we talk about following Jesus, and that's a lot of things to a lot of people. And for some people, it's it's economic or it's social or it's political or it's only spiritual or it's compartmentalized or whatever. And so collectively, we're going we're gonna to look at four areas of what it means to follow Jesus. And we're just simply calling this the way of Jesus. And the way where this comes from is Jesus says, "I am the way, the truth, and the life." He says it in the book of um, in the book of Mark, and and um, he says, "Nobody knows the Father except you come through me." And by getting to know me, you know my Father. And so there's this really cool thing. But see, it's not just uh, this interesting thing that Jesus says that He is the way. That very quickly in the life of uh, of the church. Disciples of Jesus, those who followed him, became known as followers of the way. And so um, there's baggage around Christianity. There's baggage around uh, labels within Christianity. What kind of Christianity do you mean? Um, and, And one thing that has begun to bubble up, in the 60s and 70s, you were born again. And it was born again language. Are you born again? You know, it was hippies coming to Jesus. Are you born again? And that is very biblical. It's in the book of John. Jesus talks about it with Nicodemus. And, but over time, different ideas and different... I, uh, um, there are some who are uncomfortable with even saying they're a Christian because they know what... Not because they are not followers of Christ, but because of what that label Christian means. Oh, I know what that means. You're conservative. You vote this way. You spend this way. You da-da-da. And so there's been a little bit of a resurgence in some areas where instead of talking about being a Christian, because that's just a label, you're not in or out of heaven based on being a Christian, just a circle we fill out on a form. Uh, But some say I'm a follower of the way. And so this way of Jesus is the thing that we're going to focus in on. And just to give this away, uh, there's there's four areas in following Jesus. We're going to talk about prayer, and we're going to talk about what we do with Scripture, and we're going to talk about how we gather. And we're going to talk about how we serve. And so these are the four areas that are, are central to what it means to follow Jesus. That if these are off in our lives, don't be surprised if our life of faith is just a head thing and not necessarily a life thing or whatever. Um, okay. So then the other side is one of the books that's shaping this, and it's, it's not a word for word. I think I've talked about this book before, but it's Recapturing Wonder by Mike Cosper, which was a name I didn't know up until a couple years ago. And then the podcast from Christianity Today on uh, the rise and fall of Mars Hill came out. If you haven't listened to that podcast, actually, you should listen to it. You should binge it beginning to end because it's super important. 
Actually, it's really important. Uh, but anyway, Mike Cosper, pastor 16 years, different sized churches, different um, areas of church, a lot of them down south, but um, is digital editor of Christianity Today now, and um, a voice that I respect because he's been around this thing of faith for a while and has seen some junk. And yet in seeing some junk is not, uh, doesn't seem to me to be jaded or cynical as it comes to the church, things of faith. Okay, anyway, that's, that's a lot of whatever. Where are we going, Jay? Well, let's step into a world that's foreign to a lot of us, but uh, it's a real world. So, um, so in the beginning of Recapturing Wonder, Mike Cosper tells this story. He says, I stumbled in upon my disenchantment a few years ago after attending a dedication service at my parents' church. And this isn't his parents' church. Uh, it's just a big church. When I Googled big church, high resolution, this is what I got. So anyway, <laughs> some of you know what this church is. If you know what this church is, shame on you. So no. <laughs> what's that? Oh, you're going to do that to me? Wow. Love is patient, love is kind, love is... Okay, so here's a great big old church down south somewhere. Um, and uh, anyway, that's just a visual aid. It's not the church. So, so he writes this. He says, I stumbled upon my disenchantment a few years ago after attending a dedication service at my parents' church. The new $80 million facility was roughly the size of the Death Star with a parking lot that rivaled six flags in pure concrete acreage. He said there were more volunteers directing traffic and opening doors than most churches have for attendees. So during the service, a special music number was sung by an unironically mustachioed man in a suit. A contemporary Christian power ballad was with swooning strings and multiple key changes. And about midway through the song, a large cross on the back wall began to glow. So then he goes on and he says to, like, large, large, like four stories, kind of tall, large cross. So then he says, at first the glow was subtle. It was a pale fluorescence around the edges that one might have dismissed as a weird reflection, but it soon became clear that there was some serious wattage behind it. So as the mustachioed, I love that he used mustachioed twice in his opening story. I don't think I've ever even said that word before. Uh, this guy stair-stepped keys from the bridge to the final chorus, and the light grew brighter and brighter, like migraine-inducing bright, and casting long, stark shadows on the stage. So the song ends, the crowd roars in applause, and some are wiping away tears. Everybody's clapping. And eventually the glow diminished and the house lights come up and the service moved along. And all the lights, he says, retained a standard, this worldly brightness for the remainder of the service. You can picture. So then after at lunch, Cosper says between bites of food, his dad turns to him and said, well, what did you think? And what do you mean? The cross. What do you think? It was pretty bright, right? And Cosper says he nodded. And then his dad goes, do you think? And then he lowered his voice and he said, do you think it was real? And Mike said he pushed a fork full of overcooked noodles through the gray puddle of Alfredo sauce that he regretted ordering. 
And then he searched his dad's face and he said, what do you mean? The light. It was awfully bright. And then it kind of dawned on him. And he said, do you mean like a miracle? And his dad leaned back. And I mean, it probably wasn't, he said. He scooped up a slab of lasagna, grinned, and said, right? Now, Cosper goes on, and he and he's talking about his dad, and he said his dad's not one to just get, you know, carried along with a thing. He said his dad's actually a civil engineer, and, and his job was building airport runways. And so he says his dad could tell you what kind of concrete to use, how much concrete to use to land certain kinds of planes, any kind of plane in a place. His dad's not a, you know what I'm saying. And yet here his dad was in this moment where in this multi-million dollar facility with this industrial budget, he says, at the time, dad's question seemed so odd and so out of character. But then he says, but this isn't my dad's story, it's mine. It's a story of how I stumbled on my own disenchantment. Because what surprised me in retrospect was not that dad raised the possibility of a miracle in a modern industrial megachurch service. It was the utter impossibility of such a thing in my mind. Is it stranger to want to read a miracle into a stage effect or to be a Christian whose gut-level reaction is, that's ridiculous? And I just thought this is such an incredible question. So this is a series where we are looking at the way of Jesus. Now, in that, you might be going, but wait a second, Jay, like what, what does this have to do with the way of Jesus? And, and this isn't a pop shot at mega churches or big churches or whatever because we're a little church or any of that kind of thing. Um, this is such an important thing to me for a lot of reasons. One of them is, is because we don't believe in magic. Now, through this series, I am going to intentionally use words that are not church words. Welcome to Water City, where all of the low-hanging fruit of cliched Christianity is not anything we try to reach for, because it's actually not helpful. But we live in a world of disenchantment. Charles Taylor writes about it, a Canadian philosopher, theologian. Anyone who's anyone nowadays writing about stuff quotes Taylor. Taylor writing about the age that we live in calls this an age of disenchantment. And there's something big and scary and dangerous in that. We live in a world where there is no magic. But see... The life of a follower of Jesus, it has everything to do with transcendence. Which is another fancy word for otherworldliness. So transcendence is a word that we're actually going to overuse and hopefully ingrain into who we are as followers of Christ. Magic probably brings with it too much, you know, Harry Potter, wands, whatever. But on the flip of it, it's kind of a good word. It's kind of a good word in the way that C.S. Lewis, inviting us into the world of Narnia, says that there are things, there is deep magic 
in the world. There are things that are set into place that we don't understand, that we cannot measure, that we are bound to and regulated by and live in the rhythm and movements of or against, and they just are, whether you like it or not. Gravity's deep magic, actually. Whether you like gravity or not, no matter how much we talk about someone defying gravity, Jordan always has an arch that comes down, right? Doesn't matter how long he defies gravity, he doesn't break gravity. It's the same with any, uh, any BMXer or any motocrosser or any whatever. We might defy, but gravity always wins. And that's a deep magic. But see, there's even deeper things than that because we can, we can measure it and define it and predict it and calculate it and all of that. And so this is actually a series that's going in two directions, but two directions at the same time without hopefully tearing apart. One of them is this. If you're new to faith, welcome to the party. And there is a sense of wonder that I'm guessing that you walked in with. I wonder what this is all about. I wonder if this is more than just what everybody makes fun of. I wonder if this is true. I wonder if this has meaning. I wonder. And it's that sense of wonder is the thing that I want to guard and protect for you and in my own life. Because the longer I'm around this, I meant to this morning turn off the LEDs behind our cross, which are barely on. You can't even really tell. And once in a while, someone will come in and find the remote and turn them on disco mode. And so they'll just flash. Please don't do that. But I wanted to turn them off because I knew the opening thing I was going to do and I was too busy and I forgot. And so I hope some of you recognize the, the irony and awkwardness of my opening story with an LED behind the light or behind the cross. See, I'm just like you. Some of you, you're new to this and you're like, wait a minute. What? It, it gets harder the longer you go. I would think it gets easier the longer you go. But see, then there's, there's others of us in the room, and we've been around this long enough to know this is where you go with that kind of a song. This is where you go with that kind of a message. This is where you go after this type of a holiday or whatever. And see, it's not that those things are necessarily right or wrong. It's just we lose our sense of wonder the longer we are around this. We become disenchanted. And see, we live in a world that is already disenchanted. We're not taught something. This is just the air we breathe. And so it's actually a fight for us to maintain a sense of wonder, to cultivate a sense of wonder, to, to think that God is actually still doing the miraculous. And that there's actually nothing that's supernatural. Because to say that there is something supernatural is to say that, that God actually is invading the natural. There is no division between the natural and the supernatural. That's a thing that we make up in our own mind. Well, this is what life normally is like. See, we live in a world where we predict and we know this is when the sun's going to rise and actually we can look on our little app on our phone and go, oh, sunsets at this time and sunrises at that time and you can scroll it forward and you could know until, you know, 2059 when sunset's going to be today or whatever. We can look things up. But see, in a world of enchantment, in a world of wonder, 
It's not the predictability of all the things and the measurableness of all the things and all of that that gives life reality. It's, as one writer says, the sun comes up every morning because God says, let's do this one more time today. And there's a very big difference between those two things. Now, in talking about uh, transcendence, that is a thing that if we're honest and not just in the room, but uh, humanity has a desire for transcendence, for deeper meaning behind things. It's why when we get a really good meal, we quick pull out the phone and then take the picture of it and show everybody because this meal is going to transcend. It's going to bring meaning and purpose. This is why a salmon exists. And yet we all know how ridiculous and silly that is. But, see, we have this longing for meaning and wonder and transcendence. And and it's still here. It's still here. So this morning, if you've got your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 1. So this is, this is a story of Jesus. He invites us to come and to follow him, to come and to see. In each of the Gospels, we have this incredible, uh, they each start at maybe a little bit different point in the Jesus story, but early on in each one of the Gospels, we have this where Jesus shows up to some unlikely folks, and to them he says, come on and follow me. Come on and follow me. And we usually look at like Peter and John and James and the dudes who are fishermen and because like we can relate to Jesus walking in the room and saying, hey, all of this stuff going on in your life, leave it there and come on and follow me. But see, this from the book of John is great because it's a little bit different of a story. Jesus has already called a couple, John in telling of the story, has already called a couple of people to him. And, and some are following, and then the next day we get this scene. So beginning in verse 43. The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one that Moses wrote about in the law. And about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. (laughs) Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. So great. So great. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. This is incredible. I mean, this is a whole like, are you kidding me? Jaded, cynical me is like, this dude goes all in on because Jesus says, I saw you under a tree? Like, let's just be real. So you're just walking down the street. You're on Main Street. You just got your cup of coffee from elsewhere. 
You're coming up and you're looking in the windows. Oh, look what Brinkley's got. That's great. I wonder what's, oh, it's comic book day coming up. That's going to be great. And then you walk and you see somebody sitting under the sundial. You call out to them. You're like, how'd you know me? And you say, oh, I saw you under the sundial. And they go, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Like, that's the scene. And yet, we go, man, a truer thing has never been said. Nathaniel has somebody look at him, see him, know him, and go, I know you. I know you. And he goes, I'm all in because you know me. And there's something incredible in that, and we're not going to spend a ton of time in that, but this morning, if you're just wondering if God knows you, this is the same Jesus who saw Nathaniel under the tree. And in seeing him goes, here is an Israelite with no deceit. What an incredible thing for Jesus to say. He's not just buttering him up so that he'll come on and come along. He sees something in him and he speaks that into him. Some of us, all of the voices in our world, all they are is telling us all that's wrong in us. And those negative statements begin to take root and then fester and grow. And this morning, the same God who saw Nathaniel under the tree and spoke into his life is the same God who knows you. That's not to say there's not junk in our lives. There is junk in our lives. Jesus came to save us from that. But God knows you. And so Nathaniel, he says, you're the one. I saw you there. Rabbi, you're the son of God. And this is the best. This is so great. Jesus said, you believe because I saw you under a fig tree? Like Jesus like calls out our cynicism. Like he just saw him there and he was like, okay. Jesus is like, you believe because of that? You're going to see way greater things than that. And then he added, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Okay, that's crazy. That's crazy. So remember, some of us are old enough, when you saw Jurassic Park in the theater? Was that 93? Yep, 93. I know. It's the year I graduated from kindergarten. No. <laughs> remember, remember the scene when they're gathering and they get to the island and the crazy billionaire guys, like, they're, they're riding on the, the Jeeps and then they get to the open field and the one paleontologist is, like, looking at the leaf, like, this has been extinct for a million years. And then the other paleontologist sees something and he turns her head. And he's like, that leaf's pretty interesting, but look at that. And it's a brontosaurus. Remember how amazing that was? It's like, oh my goodness. And on a lot of levels, that scene did a lot of things. I know CGI had been a thing before then. Lucas had already done stuff with CGI in one of the Indiana Jones movies where the, the stained glass window comes to life, all that stuff. But this was the moment where it felt like anything was real. 
And in that scene, they're looking at it, and they're kind of explaining it and whatever. And, and, and the music begins to swell. It's John Williams' score, right? And it's transcendent. Maybe not all the way, but kind of felt like it. And they're looking at this thing, and then the crazy white-haired billionaire kind of walks to the camera and looks past the camera, and he goes, Welcome to Jurassic Park. It's like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. I don't know what the story's going to do, but I want to go wherever it's going to go. See, there's this, I don't know how you hear Jesus say this last bit. Maybe when you're imagining this, he's saying this to the whole of the room because Jesus always speaks really loud to everyone so everyone can hear it. And maybe that's what was going on. But this last bit, I kind of picture Jesus like, you believe because you saw me under a fig tree. Man, you're going to see so much more than that. And in my mind then, I am picturing Jesus lowering his voice. And with a little bit of invitation and a little bit of you, oh my. says, not only that, but I tell you, you're going to see heaven open. And the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, we don't have time this morning to get into the book of Daniel where this is taken from. But this thing that Jesus says here that John records for us and passes down through the ages for us, this is, it's one of the dynamite passages in the Bible. It is a declaration of who Jesus is, the Son of Man the one that all nations will bow their knee to, the one who will never be defeated, the one who is going to be enthroned, the one that all makes sense of because of. And Jesus, I picture him lowering his voice and going, you're going to see this. Now, you know what's crazy? So we have this story. We've got, uh, we've got Philip and then Nathaniel. And do you know where Nathaniel comes elsewhere in the Bible? Not really anywhere. Not really anywhere. So we have this Nathaniel making this statement of declaration. You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. I mean, this is a statement as grand as the statement Peter makes. Surely you're the son of God. You're not just a prophet. You're not just someone like someone else. And yet, in, in the, the story arc of the Bible... We don't get much else from Nathaniel. There's a hint of him in the book of Acts. And that just is wild to me. That it's, it's not that he walks away from faith. It's not that he, uh, that I don't think. But that here he has this incredible moment. And then what? And then what? The early 20th century... Irish poet uh, Yeats, W.B. Yeats, says the world is full of magic things, patiently waiting for our senses to grow sharper. But here's the thing. Yeats doesn't live in our time. And in fact, the sharper our senses grow, the less magic there is in the world. 
The, the more we measure things, the more we photograph things, the more we put things under a microscope, the more we calculate things, the more we postulate things, the more we science things, the more we technology things, the further and further away we get from a world where we think there is mystery and wonder and magic and transcendence. And in fact, some are actually really annoyed that I keep using the word magic in church because it's that brings up this idea of superstition and old-fashionedness and non-sophisticated. And I'm okay with this church faith stuff as long as we are talking about historical context, as long as we're doing... Uh, uh, literary criticism in the Bible, as long as we're using the tools of science and modernity to deal with the Bible or the things of faith. But please don't talk about magic. Please don't talk about things in ways that somebody listening in on this might go, oh my word, that's just so not educated. That's just so... See, because we live in a world that's lost. We live in a, we live in a disenchanted world. We live in a world where the more we can measure, the more we can... Wow, we're cruising. I love this line. And I love that even in putting it into my keynote this morning, I was a little uncomfortable with this. Because really, magic, it's the stuff of fairy tales, it's the stuff, the stuff of superstition. And we're okay with, like, magic as long as it's C.S. Lewis magic or J.R.R. Tolkien magic. But please not Harry Potter magic. Or please not... See, we compartmentalize even the mystery and the magic that we're comfortable in dealing with or talking about. Don't worry, we're not going to end by casting spells and all that kind of stuff. But see, this series isn't going to go anywhere at all if we are not able to recognize in our own lives just how much we are shaped by the world we live in. See, Cosper goes on in the book and he says, this way of seeing the world is what Charles Taylor calls disenchantment, that Canadian philosopher, theologian. A disenchanted world has been drained of magic, of any supernatural presences, of spirits and God and transcendence. A disenchanted world is a material world where what you see is what you get. And see, this is so toxic to us because this life of faith is a life supposed to be a life of wonder. Now, when I say wonder, I mean, we could do transcendence. We'll define this in a couple weeks. But when I say wonder, what, what do you think of? How would you define or what, what are you thinking of when I think of wonder? Awe. Curiosity. Not knowing. It's right there, Norm. If you want to do it, say it. 
Mm. It's drawing back to the, the things of God. The big words. The big words that you know aren't big enough even to describe. So we try and we throw them in there. Wonder. It's, it's actually, it's a noun and it's a verb. It's a, I wonder. I, I wonder if Jay's going to go long this morning. We'll see. Wonder is also a noun. Wonder is a thing. It's a, yes, it's a feeling. And, and it, it's these things that, in, in, in everything that you guys have said, you've touched on it. It's a feeling of surprise and admiration. It's something unfamiliar. It's something inexplicable. It's something that's beautiful. And whether we know it or not, we're actually conditioned to move away from it. We're conditioned to move away from it. See, Jesus calls Philip, and then Philip invites his friend Nathaniel, and then they both come. And, Rabbi, you're the Son of God, he says. He says, here's what you're going to see. That right there is one of the wildest things that Jesus says. Nathaniel's statement, you could actually write that off as somebody who wants to have importance in their life. See other people following somebody and then on to that person say, you're an important person. You're going to do important things. We could write off actually what Nathaniel says, that you are the son of God that you are the king of Israel. We could write that off as somebody who just wants to attach their wagon to someone who's important. But Jesus takes it. And then he goes all in and he says, you're going to see even bigger stuff than that. It is this welcome to Jurassic Park moment. Jesus knows what's about to unfold and all of history has been leading up to this place and that it's about to get real. And he says to him, follow me. Follow me. And then life spills in. And if we're not actively pushing against the current of everything that's going on around us, then the current just carries us along with it. To see our culture, Cosper says, our culture rehearses stories and ideas and dialogues that shame us away from any kind of belief and transcendence. Our culture rehearses stories and ideas and dialogues that shame us away from any kind of belief and transcendence. Everything is knowable. Everything is measurable. Everything is quantifiable. Everything can put into a chart. And if we don't know it yet, just hang on because in just a little while, we will know it. This isn't a series that's anti-science. We're not a church that's anti-science. This isn't uh, anti-learning or anti-education or anti-anything. It's not about being against something. It's a call back to something that is super easy for us to move away from. Oh, I did have that as written down. And this is what it is. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16. 
were hundreds of years before the life of Jesus in the Gospels, way, way back. And to set this up, this is a point in Israel's history where the prophets are speaking to Israel going, we are off, we have lost the plot, we are not doing what we are supposed to be doing, we are not taking care of orphans, we are not taking care of the poor, we are not taking care of widows, we are not taking care of those who weren't born in our country, we are off and we are not doing the things that God in his word has told us we are supposed to do. And because of that, there's going to be consequences. And so God, speaking through his prophets, is trying to call Israel back to himself. In the book of Jeremiah, if you're ever in a really dark place, maybe don't turn to the book of Jeremiah. Because the book of Jeremiah is actually an incredibly difficult book to read. It's a pure and true book to read. And God is just saying, this is who you are, and I'm not even going to pull any punches. And see, in God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, we have this. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. And that's usually where we end. Delete, 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 delete. So inspiring. But see, Jeremiah chapter 6, it's this, and then there's another, and then there's another, and there's another. And it's this call back to a thing. And then, but God says, but you say, we're not going to walk in that. And we don't want to do that. And see, our time's different than ancient Israel. And yet it's actually not that different. There's always a different way to live, a different way to think, a different way to see the world, a different worldview, a different mythology to use to make sense of the world around us. The mythology then was the pantheon of gods around them. The mythology in our world is science. It is the thing that we use to make sense of the world around us. But see, the difficulty about using a mythology of science is that apart from God, it's just a mythology that says there is no meaning to any of this. It is a randomness of a moment in time. And if we could rewind the clock back far enough, we would get to the place where it all explodes and starts, but you have no reason or purpose or meaning for being here. That is the overarching mythology of modern humanity. See, I don't like you using the word mythology for science. Mythology is the narrative we use to make sense of the world around us. And the mythology of our culture says there is no purpose to this existence. Is there any wonder that we continue to see people who have been raised and soaked in a culture that says there's no purpose or meaning to your life continue to walk into places with guns and shoot everyone? There's no meaning or purpose to life. That is the overarching narrative of our world. Oh, we need more control of this. We need more of this. No, we need to dig further down in to say that there is meaning to this life. And not just your life, but every single life. And it doesn't just have meaning because it's accidentally here. It has meaning because the psalmist says, you knew me before you formed me in my mother's womb. There is meaning and purpose to this life. 
then that is a direct contradiction to the overarching mythology of our day, to the overarching narrative that's trying to make sense of our day. This isn't a knock on where things came from. We have a poem that gives us a story of meaning on how things are. But this doesn't have anything to do with science. And see, no, actually, we'll, that one's for later. See, we live in a world where this is, this is the truth. It's vicarious by tool. The universe is hostile, so impersonal, devoured to survive, so it's always been, so it is. This is our world. This is the world that those who say there is no God, this is the overarching meta narrative. And I'm, don't worry, this series isn't just a lecture. The series isn't just a, hey, this is the way everybody thinks, so let's think differently. The reason the I am a king speech, or the reason I have a dream speech is so incredibly powerful is because Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. knew that in order to get to the place and have everyone see what the dream was, you first had to start with the reality of what is now. And so you listen to those powerful words from Dr. King, and it's, this is where we are, this is where we are, this is where we are. And then it is, and I have a dream. And see, if we don't realize that this is actually the world that we walk out of these doors back into, why is everyone so angry right now? Because we have rejected the idea that you have meaning, and you have meaning, and you have meaning. And we are living in a world that says, only I have meaning. And actually, I don't even have that much meaning because I'm an accident. Either I'm an accident, my parents didn't want me. Maybe I'm an accident, the, the, the world didn't want me or the culture didn't want me. Or I'm an accident because I rewind all the way back and Stephen Hawking says there's no purpose to creation. This is the world we live in. And into that, then, the writers of Scripture go, actually, that's not it at all. It's the psalmist sitting out, not under impersonal stars in a world that's hostile, but sitting and going, when I look at the heavens, they declare your wonder, and they declare your glory. Today's Earth Day, right? It's Earth Day. Happy Earth Day. Recycle something. We live in a world that wants to somehow find transcendence. And so we looked at that kind of a thing. Well, at least this is bigger than me and been around longer than me, and so I'm going to like make that the thing. The right posture even to that. God, all of this declares your glory. See, the universe isn't hostile. It's fallen, but it's still good. When the difference of the narrative of Scripture is that when God created, he said it's good, and he created and he said it's good, and he created and he said it's good. Our modern scientific mythology says that there's no purpose to any of this, and it's all random, and it's all accidental. 
And the overarching narrative of the Bible is that out of love, God created. And in creating, said, this is good, this is good, this is good, this is good. See, the accumulated body of scientific knowledge can tell us all about the canvas and the oils and the minerals that combine to make the work of art, but they can't tell us why it takes our breath away. This isn't a knock. This isn't going to be eight weeks about how bad science is. I actually really like science. It's super fun. And it declares the glory of God. Just like art. Just like poetry. Just like dance and song. And see, when we begin to see, wait a minute, that is the world I live in. Not only is this the world I live in, but, but some of this is getting into me. Because this story that Cosper tells at the beginning with his dad, I'm guessing you've been there. You've listened to someone tell a story about something where they found meaning and transcendence in a thing, and you were kind of like, I don't know. Not even because they were crazy or the story was crazy, but because we are programmed to go, I don't know about that. And into that, God says, go back to the old ways. Stand at the crossroad and look and ask for the ancient paths and ask where the good way is and walk in it and, and you'll find rest for your souls. And so listen, church, over these Next week's here's where we're going. At the end of this, 100 years from now, or eight, nine weeks, whatever it works out to be, we'll do a learning circle. We'll have this conversation. And some will go, Jay, this was actually just a series about spiritual disciplines. And you might not all the way be wrong. But see, this is more than just giving us some practices to do in our life. This is a call back to ancient things, to deep magic, to truest things. But see, sometimes when we talk about the rhythms of the life of a follower of Jesus, it just sounds like a checklist of things to do to do Christian. That isn't the point of this. Here, in God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, the first bit of this call is, call to stillness. It's a call to stillness. It's a call to stillness. And one writer says that all of the disciplines, all of the rhythms of a Christian life come out of solitude and stillness. And they're not wrong. But see, we're programmed and conditioned to want to do and this and that and the next. An incredible worship service would be, come on in, countdown timer, go. Welcome to Water City. We're glad you're here. And then everyone sit down. And nothing for an hour and 15. Or we could go short, an hour. Or we could go long, an hour 45. But nothing. Just stillness. 
And see, we get uncomfortable with stillness because when we're in stillness, we find ourselves. And in finding ourselves, it's an invitation to find God, not because we are God in ourselves, but, but God is present where you are. And in that stillness, then, we have our questions and we have our doubts and we have our unknowns and we're faced with all of who we are and God goes, yes, thank you, let's, mm, yeah. And so God says to us, stand at the crossroads and look, be still. Be still. This is a call to stillness. What would it look like if just from now till sunset we said, when I am in a not knowing what to do with myself, I don't do this. What would it look like for just a day to put that away and when we are bored and when we are uncomfortable and when there's a lull in the conversation and we're not quite sure what to do, rather than grabbing the thing that is the like tesseract of motion, we just went, God, you have a deeper way in ancient path. I'm going to sit in stillness. I know you're saying things. I know you're speaking. I, we read your word today. God, I heard you say to Nathaniel, come and follow me. God, in, in my stillness, let me hear that. Let me hear, come and follow. Over the weeks to come, we're going to talk about what this looks like. We're going to really look at prayer. Some of it's weird. Some of it's not. We're going to really look at reading the Bible, not just for information, but to read it and let it be a voice that actually says something into your life. We're going to look at what it means to gather. We might look at what it means to feast. We're going to look at what it means to serve each other, to serve the world that God has put us in. So each one of these ideas are going to take two weeks. And at the end of the second week, on a, let's just say Thursday, if that works for folks, I'm just going to grab a table at Elsewhere in the afternoon. And we're going to do a mini learning circle. We'll call it a coffee ring. And I'm just going to get a cup of coffee. And come on in. And I'll have a book. If no one shows up, it won't be wasted time. I will be still. But let's just process out the last two weeks. Jay, you talked about prayer. I have some questions about prayer. I know we'll do a learning circle at the end of this, and we'll dig in together as a whole group. But, but the goal of that, when I was youth pastoring 100 years ago back in Marshfield, every Tuesday for at least one school year, I feel like it was more than one, every Tuesday, Part of this was to get out of the office because I hated being in the office and had to be. But it was after school on a Tuesday, I just went down to our coffee shop and then we had a table and we had our own little inklings. We were little C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and uh, the students and we'd talk life and question. 
And so in my mind, as we're processing through this, not that I have all the answers in this. In fact, I, I don't. But this life, this way of Jesus, it's not just information. This is movement. And so if you're in on this and you're new to this, welcome to the party. Welcome to the party. And if you've been around this a long, long time, maybe there's a little bit of recalibrating that's going to happen in this. But on the other side of this, my dream for this is that then we become a church that's marked by this. Do you know there's not a month that goes by that somebody doesn't fill out a welcome card and either commits their life to Jesus or recommits their life to Jesus? Not one month do we not get a card. Last week, there were three. Three cards. Now, back in the day of altar calls and all that jazz, we would know, we would see them, we would be excited, we would gather and rally around that. My dream is that on the other side of this would become so real to us as a community of faith that when somebody marks that, those of you who are wired to connect with others, to walk with others through things that have been around this for a little bit of time, you'd go, Jay, is there anyone who's in process on faith right now? I'd love to get coffee with them four times and talk through these four things. I know this isn't Water City, right? We don't talk like this. We don't program like this. We don't and yet on the other side of this, this couldn't be more Water City. And so, follower of Jesus, I invite you to come with us as we work our way through this. Because see, outside the door, disenchantment's waiting for you. For some of us, it's, we've been wrestling with this this whole time. Jason, you said mythology seven times. Use a Greek word. Do a parable or a story. Stop it. Disenchantment. It's like the forever chemicals that everybody's talking about right now. It's in the water. It's in the air. It's in the vegetables. These PFASs that none of us can do anything about, and they're there. And we take them in, and they get into us, and they're probably doing stuff in us. Thank you very much. But we really like Teflon on our nonstick pans, so we'll deal with it. These forever chemicals... This is the disenchantment of the world that we live in. It's just the reality of it. But follower of Christ, you are called to rage against it. To fight for that wonder. To maintain it. And to cultivate it. And to ask the Holy Spirit to nurture it in you. And so this morning, I wonder, what thing are you wondering about? What thing are you wrestling with? What thing is an unknown to you? What thing is so beautiful? It, 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 not the facts, but what thing?
Scripture is really weird. It uses this language when it comes to God. One of the writers says, taste and see that the Lord is good. That is such weird language. What does that even mean? And yet it's this invitation into knowing God in a way more than just a systematic theology. And so let's move in that church. Let's move. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a chance to gather around here and intro into something. Jesus, I pray that as we just soak in this over these next weeks, that you would reshape and recalibrate some stuff in our lives and in our hearts. Lord, help us to encounter you, not just more information about you, not just new and interesting ideas about prayer or whatever else, but God, let these things burrow deep into us that we do something with them. Lord, I pray that you would shape us into, well, into a likeness of you, that we would be more forgiving, more loving, more patient, more kind, more full of joy. Lord, that we would glorify you, make you proud in all we do. Jesus, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. This morning we end with communion. It's an invitation into something that's ridiculous. Is it? It's kind of silly that week after week we gather around these tables. Let's just be honest. There is this like, oh, okay. Broken bread reminds me of Jesus. A juice in, or a wine in a cup reminds me of his blood. Okay, I get it. I can, I can kind of see it. Transcendence isn't about the big, unexplainable things. It's also this being reminded of God is at work and present even in the smallest, even in the most mundane And so we do come to this table, each of us. Your coming can be a renewing place where you say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I'm challenged by maybe some of the things of this morning. I yawn instead of worship or whatever. And God, I recognize that, and so I pray that you would work that in me. Maybe that's what you are coming here with this morning. Maybe it's with joy you come to the table and saying that I I see what you're doing, God, and thank you. Whatever you come with this morning, know that God meets us in this space. This bread does remind us of his broken body. It is foolishness. And yet it is, in the purest sense of the word, such deep magic. This cup does remind us of his shed blood. It's foolish. We just bought this stuff at the supermarket. It's not magic. And yet it reminds us of such a deeper reality that Christ paid a price for us, sacrificed, that we might have life.
So we're going to sing. You can come. God, thank you for this. Lord, we love you.